This week's episode of the Cincy Shirts Podcast is brought to you by our partners at Gold Star, who figure into this week's episode. Check out our entire collection of Gold Star apparel at cincyshirts.com. Click on the Partners tab, drop-down menu, and select Gold Star Chili, Gold Star Chili, Small Batch Chili, and Handcrafted Hamburgers. Now, on with the show. This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 132. Today on our show, it's all about trains with Jeffrey Jakowick. And and that's also when people start talking about Cincinnati being kind of, oh, Cincinnati didn't really want the railroad. While that is sort of is sort of true from the standpoint of the riverboat interests, it's used it's usually an argument that's reframed sort of as if, oh, you know, we don't want to bother with all this stuff. Just you know, let, let Chicago have it or let St. Louis have it. And I think that that's, that's kind of a bit of a false narrative. Jeffrey has a website called Cincinnati Traction, and it's all about trains, streetcars, and interurban lines. He talks to us about the start of railroads in the tri-state, how steamboat interests reacted to that, the development of streetcars, interurban railroads, and more. Could Cincinnati have been Chicago instead of Chicago? We find out. If you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and ship in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk about trains. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. Once in a while, I'm at in Cincinnati. So the place we usually start with these things, as you know, listening, is we start off with your uh, your Cincinnati background. So are, are you from Cincinnati originally? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm uh, originally from Chicago. Another transplant. Oh, well, there, a lot of big railroad history in Chicago, too. Uh, that's for sure. You know, you, you almost can't live in Chicago and, and not get into railroads or L's or subways or anything. <laughs> never never rode the L. We never worked up the nerve. But I was going to ride it. Oh, my, we were planning a trip and I was – and uh, my comedian friend of mine said this would be a good thing to do. He said just ride the L out to Comiskey because the Indians were going to be in town and you can just watch mm-hmm. them jump back on the L and go right, right back up to the loop. And, um, but it didn't, I know that we ended up, we ended up not going that weekend, I think was the problem. So I did not get to see the Indians, but, um, yeah, I was talking to my wife too about, you know, how you can live without a car in New York pretty easily. You cannot live without a car in Los Angeles. You can kind of live without a car in Chicago because Chicago is kind of a mix of the two. It's got a great urban rail system, but also when you get out into the farther suburbs of Chicago land, it's more like, you know, any other big modern city in that it's you need to rely on, on freeways and cars and things like that. Yeah. So we lived on the North Shore. Um, OK. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's like a good like a good 25 miles out. Mm-hmm. Um, but my dad, he took the train into work every day. So that's that's something that I think that, you know, you, you see in some cities and yeah, it's great. I mean, it brings a ton of people to downtown, but like the the actual like percentage of people out in the suburbs that actually take the train is like low single digit percentages. So, yeah, everything else is still very um, automobile oriented. And uh, you tend to have a bit more active like suburban town centers than, mm. than you might otherwise, uh, because there is that. Yeah, that was like the original node of the of the town. And those have, have stayed relatively intact compared to some other places where the, you know, the, the train station's gone and they're just yeah. getting some freight trains through and stuff like that. Uh, I, so I guess people, if you, the closer you are actually to the loop, probably the more likely you are to use the train because it's probably more convenient than the surface streets. But I can see you're saying when you get out into the suburbs, people aren't really bothering, which I guess has yeah, been... No, Sorry, yeah, no, nobody for the most part tends to, tends to use it for like suburb to suburb type trips. Oh yeah, yeah, it's just going that's in. Very hard, yeah. but I think that the number of people like if if you if you live downtown, there's or excuse me, if you work downtown, there's people who live in like Wisconsin 
who who will take the train down. Now that's like a oh. hour and a half, yeah, or so train ride. But I think the way that the way that the economics tend to work up there is, no matter how expensive a train ticket is, that costs about as much as maybe three or four days worth of parking downtown. So it just Oh yeah, uh, there's 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 a direct economic factor there. That, sure, that just makes it kind of a no-brainer for a lot of people. Yeah, I know it's convenient to take the train, of course, to Comiskey, as I said, and it's semi-convenient to take it to Soldier Field because you can get off in the loop, and then it, it is a bit of a trek. But if you if you had a notion, yeah. it would be more. Con- is it? I can't remember. And we were just up in that area last summer. Uh, is it convenient to take the train to Wrigley? I don't remember if I remember seeing any stations there. Oh, maybe I do. Now that I think about it. Yeah, there is a, um, I think it's a combined red and purple line station, right? Okay. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe like a half a block or so away. Okay. Yeah. Um, and no, I remember. And that's something that I can remember. We did a couple of times when I was a kid. We could take a the commuter train to Evanston and then transfer to a purple line train and then take that right to the uh, right to Wrigley Field and back. So it's something I always ask people from Chicago because ever since I was a kid, this has always fascinated me with people that live in uh, towns with with two teams in the same sport. But I guess as you live on the North Shore, it probably is more logical. But did you root for both the Cubs and the White Sox or did you have one? Because I know friends, my friend Jimmy Pardo, Southside guy, all White Sox, not mad at the Cubs, but he's definitely a White Sox fan. I know a couple people, I think a a guy I'm friendly with, um, uh, Mike Siegel, he is a fan of both. Uh, so what, what going up with two teams, who do you root for? Well, I, I'm not really much of a sports fan. Oh, okay. Cubs are just, I mean, it's the Cubs. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, a lot of, uh, it's, it's very story. I know a lot of, it's weird because, um, I know people always go and I understand why it's a really nice area of town and, uh, you know, they've, They've really done a lot to, to, to keep it nice. And uh, so it's people really like to go to Wrigley for the experience, where I don't think people really go to Comiskey for the experience. Also because and the, probably the biggest factor of that is the fact that Comiskey now is only like a 20-year-old ballpark. So it's not even new. It's not old and historic. And, you know, Wrigley is old and historic. And I think people really dig that for the experience, regardless of who's playing. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 an almost lost kind of experience just because it is such a small stadium comparatively yeah. and there's you know, buildings right up to the edge sort of yep. you know even yeah. the ones that over overlook the ball field although i think most of those were long ago bought out by various oh for sure clubs yeah yeah whatnot they're not they're not just people's homes with bleachers on the top anymore but still where you know where where do you find stuff like that anymore yeah, and oh, one more thing before we dive into Cincinnati, I was going to mention about intercity train travel and other towns. Um, to give an example, when you were saying that you know people in the suburbs probably don't use the the trains much in Chicagoland, uh, I'm from Cleveland, and uh, before I was born, my parents and my older brother lived in a suburb called Bedford, which is really close. To, it's in the same county as Cleveland. It's really close. To, it's like like Anderson Township. And it's very convenient to get for him to get to work, but he wanted to move out into the suburbs, and he chose between Aurora, which folks outside of Cleveland would know as the former home of Joggle Lake Amusement Park and SeaWorld, and then Mentor, where they ended settled, end up settling. And my dad's decision was made by the fact that they were building a freeway to Mentor, and he would have to take the train from Aurora to get downtown to his job, and that settled it. <laughs> that was the tiebreaker. Yeah, I know that uh, the ability to take the train to work was, was one of the big factors uh, for my dad. And schools and and all that were obviously another big factor but uh i think that he he probably only ever drove to work maybe at at most once a month wow and usually that was because he would have to to drive out somewhere yeah. to uh meet a client at their house makes sense yeah uh so that that meant that when it came uh when i got to high school uh, we couldn't we couldn't actually park at the school until we were seniors, so um, that was so basically only only seniors could 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 drive to school, and I just used Dad's car, and I think there was like maybe twice that we ever had like a conflict because he, oh. he needed it. <laughs> I see. Yeah, that's fun. Because uh, in Europe, uh, is 
uh, this reminds me, you ever watched um, like House Hunters International, especially like in London, the first concern is always how far is it from the train station? Because people want to get into central London, and boy, you think it's impossible to drive in Chicago or New York. From what I can see, central London is terrible. Uh, you definitely, and plus they have a good uh, transit system like uh, New York and Chicago, so it's probably much more convenient to just live near a train station out in what they call the home counties and just, you know, train it on into London. Yeah, and London actually has congestion pricing and uh, other incentives to, or disincentives for people to drive in mm-hmm. uh, during peak times. Yeah. So uh, let's get to Cincinnati, though, and, and, and railroads. Uh, railroads, of course, a big part of uh, American history, but also for this area uh, in general. So when do railroads first start making their way into Cincinnati? Because, of course, people think – first thing you think of with Cincinnati transportation, you think steamboats because they, we've kind of made that kind of an iconic part of our history. But So when do trains show up? So the first – the first railroad chartered in Cincinnati was the Little Miami, uh, which uh, ran east from downtown and then up through uh, what would eventually become Marymount, Milford, and out to Loveland and, and up to uh, Springfield. That was actually chartered in the late 1830s. It was actually, I think, the second, only the second railroad chartered west of uh, the Appalachian Mountains. Oh, wow. Uh, the first was uh, actually one down in Kentucky. Uh, but raising money, getting construction started uh, took, a, took a fair bit of time. So we didn't really see construction starting until pretty well into the 1840s. And even then, the really big surge in railroad construction, not just here, but also throughout a lot of the Midwest, Northeast, and even into the South, was really in the 1850s because by then they'd figured out some of the technological aspects of it, like how to make proper iron and steel rails, Ah. locomotives and uh, that sort of stuff. A lot of the operations from the 1830s and 1840s were pretty uh, janky for lack of a better term. Pretty, Uh, pretty. All all very kind of bespoke, self-engineered, still uh, okay. figuring out what to do. So lots of uh, experiments and breakdowns. Uh, I was going to say, like yeah. So the little Miami Railroad people would know uh, today as mostly as the bike trail. The right-of-way is makes up the bike trail. Mostly, yes. Yeah. Uh, there's still a little bit active uh, along Riverside Drive and around Lunkin Airport, but uh, basically once you get to Fairfax and Marymount, then from from there on out, uh, it's it's all abandoned and is now the, the bike trail pretty much all the way to Springfield. So at this time, we also have canals and stuff. And, of course, the steamboats are a big – in fact, they uh, when they go to build the suspension bridge, uh, the steamboat companies are, 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 all flut, are all a flutter because they think, oh, it's going to ruin the steamboat business. Is there this kind of feeling, too, with the railroads that you can't have railroads? You're gonna, you'll kill the steamboat business. Well, yes, and – I, I did I did listen to uh, the previous podcast with uh, Derek Bauman and uh, also uh, when you talked to Elizabeth Pierce uh, for uh, Union Terminal and oh, they, yeah. they brought up some of some of those some of those things and and yeah the suspension bridge was uh, fought by riverboat interests and so was the the city's first railroad bridge uh, which was between uh, Newport and Cincinnati, which is, it's now the um, Purple People Bridge. Okay. Uh, the original bridge actually predates that one. Um, it was uh, it was actually rebuilt in the 1890s, but some of the uh, support piers and the brick, some of the brick arches and whatnot are from the original 1870s bridge. But they had actually finished building that. And then uh, the steamboat interests got the Army Corps of Engineers involved and said, hey, these uh, piers are too close together. You have to basically rebuild this bridge huh. because – and I think it was something that we would consider remarkably trivial, like the fact that the piers were not actually perfectly parallel with the uh, flow of the river. So even though they were, you know, certain 
distance apart because they were twisted slightly that effectively narrowed the channel by a couple feet. And <laughs> so they, they actually had to, I think, rebuild one whole pier, raise the bridge higher so that the steamboats wouldn't have to lower their smokestacks in high water, all, all that kind of stuff. Goodness. And so this and, and, bridge was built after the uh, suspension bridge? Uh, yes, it okay. was. All right. But not long after. No, not very long after. Um, the the original bridge was it, it was actually almost almost exclusively for the railroad. They had a, a little like wagon and cart path that was just uh, just surfaced with like wood planks and whatnot. Uh, but it was it was kind of a lightweight. Still, it still was a truss bridge, uh, but a different design than the one that's uh, that was eventually built later and that we still have today. And who built that bridge? When it was first built, it was the Newport and Cincinnati Bridge, which I think is a name that still kind of hangs around. But so when do railroads, I guess, kind of, you know, clear the interference of the steamboats and really become uh, the mode of transportation, not only for the region, but for really getting around, you know, back east or even heading out west? So uh, just just to go back to the bridge, I mean, it, I think it's enough to just say the predecessors to the Louisville and Nashville constructed the bridge. Okay. I forgot that's what LNN standed for. I was trying to remember yeah. sitting here like, what does LNN stand for? I can't remember. Louisville and yeah, Nashville. Right. There you go. All right. And I, and I guess that's all. I think that's all CSX now. But anyway, okay. Sorry. So your next, what was uh, what was your next so, topic? So when does uh, the when do the railroads finally take hold and clear kind of the interference of the steamboat interest and really become uh, you know a viable mode of not only transportation but for carrying freight you know back east and out west and and uh, really become a, a big thing in Cincinnati. So when the railroads first came on the scene, they in some ways complemented the existing waterway transportation, especially the canals, which here in Ohio, for the most part, ran mostly north-south. And that was just partly because of the available river valleys and terrain. But the early railroads, like the Little Miami, were sort of viewed as not so much as trunk lines in and, of them, in and of themselves, but as feeders where they could collect agricultural products from the uh, hinterlands and bring them, to the, bring them to the cities or to transfer those back and forth between canals or river boats. So early on, a lot of the early railroads actually ran north-south through Ohio as well because they're they had not yet figured out how to get them across the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Oh, okay, that makes whereas, sense. Yeah, so whereas the uh, like the Erie Canal and Great Lakes shipping were sort of were already in place, so they kind of viewed the the waterways as well as the Ohio River to some extent as the east-west trunk lines, and then the uh, canals and the, the Ohio canals and the railroads as the more north-south feeders and distributors. Now, by the time we get to the kind of to the 1860s and into the 1870s, they had managed to get railroads through the mountains, and that's when the canals and waterways really started to um, lose their importance and. And, and that's also when people start talking about Cincinnati being kind of, oh, Cincinnati didn't really want the railroads. And while that is sort of true from the standpoint of the riverboat interests, it's usually, it's usually an argument that's reframed sort of as if, oh, you know, we don't want to bother with all this stuff. Just, you know, let, let Chicago have it or let St. Louis have it. And I think that that's, that's kind of a bit of a false narrative. Because if you look at the amount of activity that was going on here in you know, pioneer railroads like the Little Miami in the 1840s, and then many of the Baltimore and Ohio lines that went north to Hamilton and Dayton or through uh, Loveland and to, towards uh, Columbus and also downriver, those all happened in the 1850s. 
and kind of by the 18 by the 1880s we had uh, Chesapeake and Ohio coming in through uh, northern Kentucky and what what was happening though is that if you look at uh, railroad maps from the 1800s you see there's there's just a massive web through Ohio Indiana into Illinois Michigan you know they, they could only get so many through the mountains and while there were railroads down in Kentucky and down into the south, they were nowhere near the density as north of the Ohio River. So Cincinnati, while it actually became kind of the, the railroad entry point to the southern states, and that is an important link that we can talk about in a little bit, Cincinnati was not really in the middle of this conglomeration it was sort of at the edge oh okay and and the and and also the fact that as railroads started trying to go farther and farther west and you know get uh, transcontinental routes and whatnot it was just easier to run across the easier flatter terrain through central ohio and indiana and through up towards chicago than to deal with all the hills and valleys and okay i was uh, gonna ask that yeah that makes rain yeah that makes more sense interesting okay so that's so, really more why cincinnati doesn't become chicago and chicago becomes chicago because it's just it's just easier partly yeah because there were some some companies like the cincinnati hamilton and dayton which was only the the second railroad chartered in cincinnati uh and that one that one runs basically north-south up the Mill Creek Valley to Hamilton and Dayton, obviously. That and a couple other companies had actually constructed their track with a dual gauge. So instead of the just the normal four-foot, eight-and-a-half spacing between the rails that is standard gauge, they also had six-foot rails for broad-gauge Broad gauge cars used that were going to be used by a company called the Atlantic and Great Western, which was going to be this major east-west trunk line. Unfortunately, that project never really quite came to fruition. But these early companies here in Cincinnati, I think there were like actually like three of them. And they had to go to all this expense of laying essentially twice as much rail and then much more complicated switches and junctions and whatnot to accommodate this other company that ultimately never panned out. So they made all this investment for not really any good result, but it shows that they were act, you know, they were trying to get these uh, bigger companies to, you know, to merge with and to create some of these bigger, more important routes. And just for whether, whether because of the terrain or just accidents or, you know, various financial investment shenanigans or other issues it just it just didn't happen so i don't think it was it wasn't for lack of trying but i think that some of the uh some of the deck was was stacked a bit against cincinnati for for that so once railroads are kind of going when do we get the notion to like start coming up with streetcars and like smaller interurban lines to take people just around the region so after the um after they kind of got the technology of railroads semi figured out. So let's let's call it the 1850s. That's when we started to see horse cars and horse car lines started to be developed, mostly in the inner portions of the city. So downtown, over the Rhine, the West End, and maybe a little bit out Eastern Avenue, Riverside Drive. Because by then they 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 knew how that they how they could make iron rails and keep them relatively intact and straight. And so that would allow essentially, essentially it's passenger wagon on steel rails and steel wheels to be pulled by horses, which was much easier than say, just pulling just a regular wagon behind a, behind a horse because the streets were in, in the mid 1800s were, even in the middle of the city were mostly just dirt. So, you know, they'd, they'd be rutted and hard and dusty in the summer and in the winter and spring, they'd be muddy, sticky messes. So having the steel rails in the street because of all the reduced friction uh, allowed horses, 
pull these uh, horse car wagons much easier than they would be able to otherwise. The one thing that they couldn't do very easily, though, is go up hills. And so that's why, for the most part, horse car routes did not go up to places like Walnut Hills, Mount Auburn, Clifton, etc. They had they had one or two, but they were not very successful because they would like they'd have to like change horses out halfway up, or they need to stop and rest a lot, or things like that. Ah, uh, so, th- so is that where we get inclines, or does that come so later? Kind of in the eighteen seventies, we got two things: we got inclines and steam dummies. Inclines, most people are relatively familiar with. Uh, basically, it's just two two parallel rails going up the hill and um, platforms that could either carry passengers or later they could carry horse cars and street cars. And they're counterbalanced with one another, so they don't really they don't really need much power to operate. They're they're essentially they're essentially like an elevator, uh, except instead of having a cab and a counterweight, you'd have two cabs that are connected to each other. And for the most part, if the same number of uh, people or horses or whatever are going up as they're coming down, then it almost just works by itself. And so we got five inclines built around the city to the various hilltops. And in a lot of cases, yes, a horse car would go to the bottom. Usually people would then just get off get on the incline, go up to the top, and either walk to wherever they were going, or they might catch another horse car to go farther into those various neighborhoods. But as you might imagine, all this you know, stopping and transferring and waiting and stuff meant that you, know, you weren't really going to get much development much past the, the hilltops. What uh, what also started happening at this time were steam dummies. These were essentially small railroad locomotives built to look like, say, a streetcar or a uh, horse car trailer. It didn't do a very good job <laughs> because they were small and kind of crammed in, everything crammed in there. Uh, they had problems with reliability. Uh, they were always underpowered. They were still noisy and smoky, so they'd scare horses and things like that. And generally, they were just always breaking down. Uh, but we had a couple, couple of those around the city. The, the one that, that most people have heard about is uh, the Mount Lookout dummy, which uh, ran up and down what the, the street that predated Delta Avenue. Um, it actually used to be a much more scruffy sort of country lane that was a lot steeper. And so they, they built this uh, steam dummy to go from Eastern Avenue up to eventually uh, Erie Avenue. That lasted maybe about 20 years or so. But once we get to the later 1870s and into the 1880s, we actually get cable cars. And this is something that most people don't know about. I mean, most people are familiar with the cable cars in San Francisco, and um, they're relatively easy to understand. I mean, it just looks like a streetcar, but instead of being powered by electricity or a steam locomotive or something, there's a cable moving in a slot underground, and the uh, operator of the cable car operates something called a grip, which basically reaches into that slot underground and either grabs or lets go of that cable and pulls the car along. Cincinnati had three cable car lines, all of which went down to a Fountain Square or within about a block or so. One went to Clifton, one went, meant, one went to Mount Auburn, and another to Walnut Hills. Interestingly, there is actually a fair number of cable car systems throughout the country. Chicago actually had the largest one. It's not somewhere you would necessarily think would have something like that. But just because the city was growing so much, uh, they had a huge need for surface transportation at the time. And that was really the only reliable way that they had found to transmit power. And by power, I mean uh, not necessarily electricity, but the ability to move something over relatively long distances. One of the reasons, though, that cable cars remained in a place like San Francisco and, and actually were uh, relatively 
relatively popular here is because cable cars, they don't care about hills at all. You know, a 20% incline is basically the same as a 0% incline to a cable car because as long as, as long as it has a good grip on that cable, it just goes with it. And the things like slipping on rails or difficulty braking or getting traction to start moving again, these don't really happen. Now, there's many, many other problems uh, with cable cars. So they generally didn't last until about the turn of the 20th century by the time electric traction was uh, really growing. Um, now, on Gilbert Avenue, there's uh, there's something called the Cable House, and I believe it's yes. offices. And, so that is one of the – that was the one probably for Walnut Hills, and that's where the, the, that's where the power supply, I guess, is that, that pulls the cable. Yeah, that's where the steam engine was that uh, pulled the cable, and uh, that was generally also the the car barn and machine machine shop and and, and all that. Uh, usually, they, they put those sort of in the middle of the line, so that was about roughly halfway between downtown and the end of the line, which in that case was at uh, in Evanston at uh, Blair Avenue, uh, kind of near the, uh, was it five points or six points intersection with Montgomery, Woodburn, Gilbert, and Hewitt. And interestingly, sometimes city ordinances required certain speed restrictions. I mean, cable cars were probably running at about, usually at about eight miles an hour, which is not fast. But consider, though, that there were really no other vehicles on the roads at the time. Downtown, you would have congestion, but by downtown, I mean basically, you know, like 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th Street, and maybe like Walnut, Vine, uh, Race, Maine, that sort of thing. Okay. Once you get anywhere out, then, you know, you'd, you'd have a, an occasional person on a horse or a carriage going by, but there was really no traffic. So if the cable car could run at eight miles an hour, it could run at eight miles an hour. It was just a function of how many times they had to stop to pick people up or let people off. But anyway, usually what would happen is you'd take the cable car up, and once once you go past the, uh, the cable house, you'd actually speed up because that was like the outskirts of the city at that point. So they could go 10 or 12 miles an hour. So they'd actually have two separate reels of cable going at different speeds. And then in you, order to you, do that, so you just and, hook and into the you hook the, into the express uh, cable. Then, if you wanted to go, if you want to go to the a blistering speed of twelve miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, there's another cable house still at Dorchester and Highland uh, that has not. I don't think it's had any sort of function for decades. Um, and the the third one was uh, near UC, where the uh, uh, the power plant is now at uh, Vine and okay. Jefferson and MLK. Yeah. And in fact, that was still there until they built that power plant. I think it was actually used for um, uh, design studios for DAP. Oh, that's cool. And then you said by the turn of the century, though, we're, we're, we go from cable to uh, electric. Yeah. So the first really reliable electric electric street railway system was developed in 1888. That was basically the point when a guy named Frank Sprague uh, had come up with, okay, here, here's how we do motors and control speed and distribute power and whatnot. And that led to just an explosion of electrification throughout the country. And so the very late 1880s, the early 1890s, and they started they started building electric streetcar systems in a lot of places, converting cable cars, converting horse car systems and everything, because they had they'd finally kind of just gotten this figured out here here in Cincinnati, because because we already had a handful of handful of horse cars, cable cars and even some steam dummies kicking around. They, they gradually started to electrify here, but it, it certainly took it, it took probably uh, about a decade to get everything sorted out and then new lines and whatnot. One thing that they were still experimenting with at the time, the best way to distribute the power. Most, uh, in most places you had you had a single wire overhead 
that was carrying DC current and you would have a pole on top of the car to pick up the power and then send it to the motors underneath uh, at the wheels. And then the return current would go through the rails to get back to the uh, power station or substation or whatever. In Cincinnati, they actually started experimenting at the very beginning with two wires overhead to have basically a positive and a negative because a lot of the rails, whether they were from the cable cars or horse cars, were not really bonded electrically. Oh. Uh, so um, that that would cause problems. And, and also usually the franchise the franchise agreements said you can't dig up the streets and you know impede other traffic, even though there really wasn't much. But what happened relatively quickly was uh, when they did start trying to use the rails as power return, um, it started causing uh, static and noise in the phone lines which even at the time were, were a lot of them were, were underground because apparently phone lines are a lot easier to bury than power lines. Uh, but so they were getting complaint from the phone company that, hey, you know, every time your car goes by, it causes all sorts of static and interference. And so eventually there was a, a significant lawsuit. And it, while this lawsuit was in process, they had put an injunction on the street railway company saying that, no, they you cannot use the rails for electric returns. So they basically had to build twice as many wires overhead in order to uh, accommodate this. And eventually the street railway company actually won that case. But by then they had built so much of this dual overhead wiring that they just pretty much stuck with it for all but some of the very farthest out routes. So um, when are cable cars done? So basically, basically by um, pretty much by about 1900. Okay. Uh, you know, some of them uh, at some point they would have uh, an electric line running partly over the same route or to go farther out or something. But they, yeah, they finally retired the last one uh, right around the turn of the century. And then overlapping this, of course, we have uh, something I'm interested in is the interurban railroads because one of them runs right through Anderson Township, where I live, uh, the, the Georgetown and Cincinnati. Um, so when do the when do those start to kind of pick up and kind of what's their function? Is it to take people so they can get further out and live in the hinterland and get into the city more quickly? Or what's what's the story behind those? So the interurbans are, are are an interesting are an interesting thing because we don't really have anything quite like them anymore, and they were very fleeting in their existence. Uh, but basically, as pretty much as soon as they had figured out the sort of street railway electrification problems in the late 1880s, they almost immediately started applying this uh, technology to longer haul routes. So, I mean, even as I think that the first inter interurban was built in around about 1890 um, and quite a few were built in the 1890s. As Cincinnati, they didn't really start until about 1900, though, partly because partly because the uh, Cincinnati Street Railway was not too cooperative and there was trouble getting investment and things like that. But, but basically what the interurban was, it was basically a larger, heavier, higher speed streetcar type vehicle that could carry passengers as well as some freight. And they were really meant to, to sort of connect, ideally connect between various large cities, but more often than not, they would connect larger cities with smaller cities and towns within roughly a uh, probably 50 to 100 mile radius there's there there were a few that ended up connecting the small town to small town and those those never really worked out very well but so generally the the interurban was for the most part would uh, run on would run on the city streetcar rails and then once it got out of town would either run off to the side of the highway or maybe on a private right-of-way, connecting as many small towns, farms, and whatnot as possible. Because the, the idea being to give frequent and uh, less expensive travel options to, to people who are not in the, in the immediate city. Because even, even if you were you know, a, a small town like, say, like Georgetown, 
even if you had like a, a mainline steam railroad running through town, they might only stop, you know, a couple times a day at most. And probably half of those trains would just be freight trains. So it was okay if you like, you know, okay, you, you needed to go to the next big town once or twice a year, you know, for to visit a relative or for a funeral or something like that. But it was not like, hey, I think I'd like to go one town over to to the hardware store or go to the theater or something. It was too expensive for that. And it was too infrequent for that. So the interurbans came came by and they generally ran a car by every hour or two. And their fares were generally about two thirds of what they would be on a steam train. So okay. that that was that was kind of the kind of between between streetcar service and full railroad service, uh, which, again, is, is something that is kind of hard to to place nowadays. I mean, I think probably the closest we ever we ever had was Greyhound, because, in, in fact, a lot of the predecessor bus companies to Greyhound were either the competitors to inter interurbans back in the day or they might have been uh subsidiary routes or you know whatever they converted to after they gave up rail operations so i know about like i said the the, the georgetown and cincinnati railroad how many other of uh, of these are there because i know um people can trace kind of you can try and trace the roots of the georgetown and cincinnati for sure uh are there other like railroads like that, that maybe folks on the west side or the north side of town can kind of go back and see those spots and places where the railroad once was yeah, so there were um, there were nine routes out of Cincinnati, and with three, or excuse me, with six different companies. So I can just uh, I can just run through them really quick. There was the Cincinnati Lawrenceburg and Aurora, which uh, ran from Anderson Ferry out to uh, to uh, Aurora and also to Harrison. There was the uh, Cincinnati and Lake Erie which grew out of the College Hill Railroad and a couple of other predecessors between Cincinnati and Dayton. That one was the longest lived because it traversed the uh, much busier corridor of Mill Creek Valley and Great Miami Valley up towards uh, Dayton and then to Springfield and uh, uh, Troy and Lima and, and, and all that. The Cincinnati and Hamilton Traction Company was kind of an outgrowth of the street railway, which also went up Mill Creek Valley. Um, Then there were three interurban railway and terminal lines. So this company built three different routes, all of which came off of the street railway. And then one went to Lebanon and then another one went to the east side past Coney Island to New Richmond. And then they also had another route that went through Mount Washington and then basically followed Beachmont and Ohio Pike out to Bethel. There was the Cincinnati, Georgetown, and Portsmouth, which did get, in its, in its waning days, was renamed the Cincinnati, Georgetown. But that was actually an old narrow-gauge steam railroad that converted to electric and, and interurban at the turn of the century. Um, then there was the Cincinnati and Columbus Traction Company, which ran from Norwood to Hillsboro. So basically its name was <laughs> basically a fraud. Huh. And also the Cincinnati, Milford, and Blanchester, which was originally called the Cincinnati, Milford, and Loveland, although they never actually operated to Loveland, but that's where they wanted to go. Yeah. And uh, Well, same thing with the and, Portsmouth. I think the, the Cincinnati and Portsmouth ever made it to Portsmouth. Yeah, so... They they built that, like I said, that was originally a narrow gauge steam railroad. So it, instead of four feet, eight and a half, it was three feet between the rails. That was supposed to be cheaper and easier to navigate hilly terrain. And they, they were kind of meant to be more um, sort of a, an intermediate between or, or call it more local slash regional service versus the full on you know, mainline steam railroad. But they started building that in the 1870s, and I think that it was in the 1880s or so that they reached Georgetown. But at that point, the competing Cincinnati and Eastern, which was uh, which is the the railroad that runs through Newtown, yeah, 
and out to Batavia. And basically from there follows Ohio 32. Uh, that did reach Portsmouth. So the Cincinnati Georgetown in Portsmouth was like, all right, well, I guess we're done. <laughs> we'll just we'll just operate this this route that we've got and not worry about extending farther because this other company has already made it there. Now, on your site, uh, do you have railroad maps? I know I found one. Uh, and I was able to kind of trace the uh, – I don't know if I found it on your site though. But I was able to f- trace the Georgetown and Cincinnati as well as the Cincinnati Eastern because I discovered there was a line that went off at Newtown uh, and went right through near my neighborhood and then went off to New Richmond. And uh, yeah. there's houses there now. It basically follows the the floodplain of Dry Run and then it bends off and goes through another kind of holler. Uh, and then goes on down toward New Richmond. But it's interesting to think that uh, there was a that was train tracks before there were houses down there and stuff. So if people want to kind of explore uh, their neck of the woods, as it were, can they can do that on your site? Correct. Yeah. So the kind of the the two biggest things on my website are the map, which when I first started this, gosh, twenty years ago, um, was just Hamilton County and a little bit of northern Kentucky. Uh, but now it extends all the way up through um, Dayton and Xenia and out uh, basic, basically to the extent of the Cincinnati area interurbans. So, yeah, Georgetown, Russellville, Hillsboro, a little bit in uh, southeast Indiana. Oh, cool. Um, so that and, and a lot of photographs, both current and historical. And I also have uh, historical write-ups of, of everything some some more fleshed out than others. <laughs> it's, it's That's been cool. Kind of a, just a, a, a kind of a long process over the years, just just keeping adding more and more information. Yeah, well, especially if you walk these uh, some of these bike trails that are in some of the old uh, right of ways. Like my wife and I go walking at Lunkin Airport and the huge paths there, and then the the southernmost path there. Uh, part of that is the old right of way for the Georgetown and Cincinnati, and then at some point it 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 used it should used to shoot straight back behind the airport, but they bent out I think the the trail to accommodate uh, more runway and to, to alleviate flooding. But you can still there was a guy I saw on some website that went with his son and traced the entire route of the Georgetown and Pacific from the terminus in East Cincinnati all the way up to uh, to Georgetown I believe, and kind of finding out where all the old old stuff was. So, um, so your and your website is. is specifically so people can go look this up so best way to find it would be just to search for cincinnati traction history okay um there you go and uh that'll 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 get you right to it yeah that uh cincinnati georgetown and portsmouth there's actually a really good walking trail in california woods um oh yeah yeah and i think it's even the, the one that 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 is the rail bed is called california junction Okay. Because there was actually a junction up there. Yeah. Where the main the main route kept going up to Mount Washington, but then a branch line uh, was built to the uh, Cincinnati Waterworks and through California to um, Coney Island. Cool. I'll have to check that so, out next time I'm there. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, um, this has been a lot of fun. I learned a lot, and there's still a whole list of questions I, I have yet to get to, but um, we've kind of reached the hour mark, so I figured well, this would be a good stopping point, and maybe we'll have you back, and we can uh, further discuss some of these uh, the other things. And um, and thanks for taking the time on a Saturday morning when we're recording this to do this as well. Sure. I'd love to be back. There's so much to talk about. Yeah. I mean, there's um, – and, and in, in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect, you know, like – uh, electric traction through Indian Hill or, oh, yeah. um, you know, abandoned, never completed railroads in um, Mount Airy Forest, stuff like that. Oh, that's it's just oh, cool. Oh, yeah. We definitely have to talk about that. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. well in the meantime, um, as you know, some, from listening to some of the episodes, you get to pick a coupon code now and folks can use that to take uh, 20% off their order at CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com. And so what would you like that coupon code to be? Well, I think considering where we finished off, it should probably be interurban. Interurban. There you go. Super. All right. Well, everybody go visit uh, Jeffrey's website. And I'm already anxious to talk about abandoned railroads. Maybe get you and Ronnie Salerno on our, our abandoned Cincinnati guy together to discuss things. That's straight in his basket. So, um, yeah, uh, appreciate you taking the time again. And uh, I guess have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you so right. much. Thanks, Jeffrey. Great to be here. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Waiting for the train that never comes. 
Jeffrey Jacowick. Uh, he was worried he wouldn't have enough to talk about, and I assured him it was a vast subject and he would have plenty to talk about. And he did. We, Like I said, we uh, left off there with uh, what we could have talked about more, quite frankly. Also, uh, he's going to help me track down the freeway guy, Jake Mecklenburg, so uh, we can look forward to that, talking all about the Tri-States Highways and how those developed. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast or someone you'd like us to have back on the podcast, email us podcast at cincyshirts.com, put podcast guest in the subject line, and just give us the details of who you'd like us to have on or have back. And let me see, uh, be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but they still feel connected to the tri-state in some way. And if you haven't already, please go back and check out the Cincy Shirts podcast archives. There's 131 episodes back there now. They're all gems, I can assure you. And today's show is produced by me, with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. Still trying to get that guy on the show, too. I want to play a bunch of uh, Cincinnati songs and uh, find out, of course, what our theme song is actually about. If you listen to the whole thing, if you've been in our store, we do play the whole song on our sound system from time to time, and uh, it's actually kind of a sad song in a way, so we'd like to get the details on that. Anyway, you can find Big Nothing's music in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Philadelphia, Louisville, Seattle, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We have a lot of defunct teams, old restaurants, old radio stations, things like that. It's like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns, of course. And the promo code for this episode is Interurban. It's all one word, I-N-T-E-R. U-R-B-A-N, interurban, all one word, all uppercase, all lowercase. That part doesn't matter. You're going to use that today, 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or come into our stores in Over the Rhine or Hyde Park and say you'd like to use the code interurban, and they will take 20% off your entire order. How about that? So follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.